Welcome to That Shit Show, a podcast about overcoming trauma. I'm Emma Castle. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the show, David Rowland. David Rowland is a psychologist and he is also an author who has written three books, uh, one of which is about how he actually overcame a stroke. So that's what we're going to focus on today, but we're also going to talk about some of David's other work because he is extremely accomplished and does a lot of speaking work on um, how the brain works. So welcome, David. How are you going? I'm very good, Emma. I'm managing in these uh, interesting times quite well. Oh, good, good, good. So, um, so tell me a little bit about yourself. So, when you say you're like my, or you are a psychologist, so um, do you practice? Do you have a practice, or do you mostly do teaching and writing papers these days? I originally trained as a psychologist and then specialised in clinical and forensic psychology. And I did that for more than 20 years. And in that work, I covered pretty much every type of client and every type of situation that uh, psychologists can work in. I also worked in the prison system for a while. And I did uh, forensic work for victim services and the children's court clinic. And both that work about what forensic psychology is versus kind of what most people would understand psychology as being. Forensic psychology is not mainly that criminal profiling that people see on TV. Um, That's the more charismatic end of of it. So I've never done anything like that. Essentially, forensic just simply means where, say, say you intersect with the law. So a health discipline intersects with the law. So in this case, forensic psychology just means where, as a psychologist, I'm involved in the court process or the legal process. So I would provide reports, do assessments for the court, the different types of courts. So for the children's court clinic, that would be assessments of family and children where the children had been removed from the parents either because of neglect or abuse or some other life circumstance, which meant that they couldn't properly care for the children. Okay. And so that would involve also, I imagine, doing assessments to see with whether the parents are ready and willing to take the kids back. With that, Do you work with both sides or just with one side or the other? It's not that I'm taking sides. That's the important thing. So I'm an expert witness to the court where I'm advising the court on just what the situation is. They want an expert opinion. They want a psychologist who's assessing all the principal members of the family, even including potential carers. So sometimes children might be removed from the parents, but the grandparents might take them on or another relative might take them on. So they're just really looking for an expert opinion and then the magistrate or the judge, depending on the court, will make the final decision. Right. Okay. So are you still doing that kind of work or have you moved on from that? I guess this is where my story gets interesting because I gave up that kind of work after doing it for more than 20 years because I became traumatized from all the stories I'd heard. Some situations in the prison system that I faced where I felt under threat, physically under threat, And after 20 plus years, all those stories caught up with me. And I had young children at the time, and I would imagine them in these horrible situations and being hurt or even killed. 
and I was re-traumatizing myself uh, just by imagining those things happening to my own children, even though it was totally fictitious. That's when I realized something was wrong. I wasn't handling it very well. And I went and saw a a more senior clinical psychologist and he diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. Because for the first time, I actually wasn't looking forward to going to work. Wow. So I had that, that was 10 years ago when I stopped, mm-hmm. thinking I would have a short break, get better again and go back to it. But this is where the story starts to get interesting. This is how the writing side and the speaking side eventually developed out of stopping all my clinical work. Right. Okay. So, so what happened then? So you sort of had this, this time off, a sabbatical, you were seeking help. So knowing as much as you do about the way human minds and emotions work, how did you treat yourself? The, the principal treatment was seeking therapy because I was at a loss to, to know what to do for myself. And that was fairly standard therapy that you'd use for trauma. However, in the middle of that, and we're talking now about the period of time, the global financial crisis, in 2009, I had a stroke. And it just came out of the blue, but it came at an incredibly stressful time when me and my family were being hammered by by, uh, banks and financial institutions for for debts that we couldn't pay because I hadn't been able to work for two years. We had some property, but we couldn't sell it because of the conditions at that time. So that stress seemed to have brought on the stroke. And then that's when I started this inquiry into how the brain works, how you can use your brain to heal yourself. And that's where I write about in my memoir, How I Rescued My Brain. All the, all the strategies that I learned to use to get well again. Okay, so I'm guessing you were hospitalised. How long were you in hospital for? Well, the other twist to this story is because I'd had the post-traumatic stress disorder prior to the stroke, um, my wife rushed me to the local general hospital where they don't have a neurologist, we're in the country, and they didn't do a brain MRI, which they should have done. They did a CT scan, which doesn't always show up brain injury, certainly when it's just happened. Uh, And then they decided, well, I had extreme amnesia. I couldn't remember what had happened five minutes before. And apparently I was talking in a dreamy sort of voice. They decided that maybe because of the stress of what was happening, I had a psychogenic fugue, which is really just a stress-related amnesia. Mm-hmm. So they sent me off to a psychiatric hospital. Now, I was in that psychiatric hospital for, I think, in the end, only eight days, but I was desperate to get out of there. I didn't feel comfortable there at all. And uh, it wasn't until three weeks after my initial hospital admission that a brain MRI was done. Fortunately, one of the psychiatrists at the psych- psychiatric hospital just wanted to make sure there wasn't anything neurological going on. And he rang me. I was actually sitting by the beach, which was one of the few places where I felt felt soothed and calm. He rang me and said, David, uh, sorry, we've made a mistake. You've had a stroke. And at first I I didn't, couldn't comprehend what a stroke was. This is my mind was going so slowly. 
And I said, okay, so what do I do now? And he said, well, I would go straight away to your GP. And so I packed up and got in the car and on the way to the medical center, I started to, it started to sink in. Oh, a stroke. Now that's an organic thing. That's not a mental illness. And I thought, yay, I've got an organic condition. <laughs> I'm, I haven't had a nervous breakdown, which is what I thought I'd had. And so I arrived at the medical center and just, you know, strode up to the receptionist and said, I've had a stroke. I need to see the GP. <laughs> and she was a bit taken aback. But, <laughs> but I got to see my GP the next day and straight away she um, got me to do all sorts of things and referred me on to a physician who had worked with stroke survivors before. Okay, so you didn't have some of the normal symptoms, I guess, that people look for, you know, the smile, like you didn't have any facial sort of, you know, muscular, Droopiness. droopy, none of that. So it wasn't visually obvious that you'd had a stroke. So I guess what kind of stroke did you have and what happened then? So I should say, just so you, so listeners understand that uh, that that droopiness or that one-sided uh, immobility doesn't happen always in strokes. And I think it's something like one in five strokes or what they call walk and talk strokes. So the person can still walk and still talk, but they're obviously not the same. Uh, and so then it's more of a cognitive injury. So in my case, I lost a quarter of my visual field because the left vertebral artery that goes to the back of the head, uh, you know, uh, provides blood to the optical area of the brain and also the, it went it down into the left temporal lobe which is involved in auditory processing so a conversation like we're having now I couldn't have had because I, it would have been so tiring and it was like I was speaking English as a second language so you would ask me a question and it, that would sound like you're speaking a foreign language I'd have to interpret what that word was in my mind then think of the answer and then translate it back into your language. Uh, so it, it was an incredibly tiring process, and I, we would be having a conversation, and I couldn't remember what the question was. You just asked me. So in the middle of answering the question, I completely forget what the question was. I wouldn't know if I'd met you the day before. I wouldn't know that we'd met, and therefore I wouldn't know if I'm repeating myself. So it was a pretty scary time. I lost a quarter of my vision, uh, visual field, so my eyes and the optic nerve was fine, but it was just the high order of processing of visual information that was knocked out. Mm -hmm. But the worst was the auditory processing because I'd lost a lot of memory for facts and names of things and conversation and, and, and noise were, were very difficult to process. Right. So how did this impact your family? Because at this stage you're already, things were not so good before this happened and then this happened. So I guess how did the people around you respond to this? What, what I found is that when you've had a major injury that's, or disability that's invisible, it's quite hard for others to understand what you're going through. If someone's, you know, lost use of their legs and they're a paraplegic, it's, it's more obvious what they can and can't do and people can accommodate that and understand that. 
when it's an invisible injury, like a mental illness, for example, but a brain injury in this case, no one can see it and you can appear to be quite normal on the surface. So one of the difficulties is you have to keep telling people or reminding people, okay, I can't be in a crowded room or go to a restaurant where there's music playing overhead because I can't dampen that sound down. So normally in a, in a, in a room or where there's conflicting sounds, our brain is able to depress the sound of extraneous noises to the conversation that we're having and amplify the sound of the conversation that we're having. Now, you don't know that the brain's doing this until it can't do it anymore. And there were lots of things like that where I didn't realize my brain had been doing these things automatically for me. And so I was discovering this, but it was even harder for those around to to accommodate it because they couldn't see it. So I had to keep reminding them. So for the family, it was difficult. The children were young at that point and, you know, they'd run around the house and scream and make children's noises. And I would have to say to them, kids, daddy's got sore brain right now. I need you to be quiet. Or I'd have to just go away and go for a long walk. Um, And it was very difficult for my wife because she, as you said, we were all already under extreme stress and uh, we were both just coping anyway before the stroke happened. So she was having to carry a lot more at the time. So she would ask me things like, you know, what would you like for dinner? And that, that, that was such a hard question to answer because I, I couldn't, I had to remember what dinner is. And then I had to think, okay, dinner's an evening meal. What sort of meals do we have in the evening? Okay, and what do I like or what would I want to eat? And then I have to um, tell her back again. And sometimes I said, look, I can't answer your question. And that can be frustrating for others. They ask a simple question like, how are you? And it's the effort of trying to answer that question is so great, so tiring. They just say, I'm sorry, I can't answer your question today. Yeah, right. So you're in this state where you're really struggling to process auditory information. And so how do you kind of have the mental capacity to understand that you want to heal yourself, that you want to get to work on a solution? Because it sort of sounds like you're in this state where everything's pretty hard and things are not clear. So at what point, how long did it take for you to kind of think, okay, I can do something about this and here's what I'm going to do? Mm. I can't tell you exactly how long that took, but it was certainly months. Uh, There is a natural healing that goes on in the brain. So things got easier just through natural healing, not through anything in particular that I was doing. But fortunately, in my case, I had a background in neuropsychology and I'd actually trained in neuropsychology as part of my overall training and I had done brain assessment, you know, people who'd had brain injuries, I'd done psychological or psychometric assessments to see what areas of deficit they had. So for a start, I was asked to go and do a psychoneurological examination with a psychologist, and I could understand the results, his report, better than the average person. And that's when he's, he identified that my auditory processing was really compromised. 
and that made sense to me. So I had the formal information plus my own feeling about it. And then I thought, okay, so I really need to work on the auditory processing because the visual thing wasn't so difficult for us because we're in the country. It was the, the top right quadrant of my vision that was missing. And in the country, that's mostly sky. <laughs> you don't need to, to, see, to see that uh, in particular to get around. So I could still drive, which is really important. So I worked on the auditory stuff and that's when I thought, well, I need to retrain my brain in that field. And I discovered that there were some brain training programs that you did on a computer. And this was in the very, very early days of brain training exercises. I sought out a program that seemed to be the best and I did those exercises intensively. I could only do half an hour a day before I became too fatigued. I did that intensively for about three months and that really helped my auditory processing. So that's how I dealt with the auditory processing side of it. But there are other aspects that I needed to deal with as well, which I'm happy to go into. Yeah, so what did you do? So you've done the brain training programs, but how did you cope with the rest of it? The other specific area that I worked on was emotional regulation, which is the, the fancy word that psychologists use for just managing your emotions. And I was still affected by the trauma because of the GFC consequences and having this brain injury although I'd been getting better with managing my emotions and recovering from the trauma, it just set it off all over again. So I was like re-traumatized all over again. So I was irritable. Sometimes I'd fly into a rage just for no because of noises, the kids running around. Um, I always felt under threat. I'd be out in public and think something bad's about to happen or somebody's going to attack me. So I had a lot of difficulty just managing my emotions I was even getting suicide, really strong suicidal urges, which, you know, scared the hell out of me that I was just having those. So I, I, I learned then that uh, I started to read neuroscience books that had a therapeutic angle, and I learned that mindfulness meditation in particular changed the brain in a way that allowed you to control your emotions better. So if you can imagine... There's two parts of the brain that trigger our emotions, and one is one is uh, what they call the quick and dirty route, which is, you know, if somebody says something to you that you don't, you take offence at, you just automatically respond without thinking it through, and that that's that's like the more primal part of the brain responding. The more advanced part of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, the area behind our forehead comes in a bit later and, and re-evaluates that situation and might say, oh, that person just said that, but they didn't mean it the way you thought. They're actually joking, uh, but you, you interpret it as a threatening remark. And so I needed, to, I needed to activate that prefrontal cortex more and sooner. Uh, and that's where mindfulness meditation came in. And it strengthens the neural connections between the prefrontal cortex and that more primitive limbic part of the brain that just reacts spontaneously to any sense of threat, even when it's not a real threat, but just a perceived threat. Right. So you've discovered 
mindfulness meditation. So how do you, how do you take it? Like, you know, is it an online thing? Is it something you listen to or is it like a place that you go to and actually do classes? Like how do you engage with this thing? Well, you can do it in all those ways you've mentioned. In my case, I just, I knew that mindfulness and meditation, and this is before mindfulness had become such a, a big and widely known thing. It was in the early days. I knew that that came out of the Buddhist meditation tradition. So I thought, well, maybe I should talk to a Buddhist teacher because they, they would know the best, surely. And I went to a course in Sydney that happened to be running with the Dalai Lama and it said steps in, it was called something like steps in meditation. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. <laughs> He's going to teach uh, meditation. Well, it turned out to be a, a text, a Tibetan Buddhist text that, that was very complicated and way above my understanding. However, being in that crowd, there was like 5,000 people at the stadium in Sydney every day for five days. It really, really soothed me. And each morning they had Buddhist teachers from different traditions running a meditation. So I got to learn different ways of meditating. And during the lunch breaks, you could go and talk to a Buddhist monk and ask questions. And from that, I learned about a teacher that I could go and see after the event. And that's, that's how I started, just direct teaching from a t- teacher. Right. Okay. So you found a local teacher um, who you went to go and see. So was it one-on-one or was it in a group meditation or how did that work? In this case, he wasn't a local teacher. He was from Canberra. And at that point I was on the North coast, but I traveled and did a uh, retreat with him at their retreat center. And also he came up to Brisbane, which is closer to me. And I did a weekend workshop where he was teaching samadhi meditation, which in Tibetan Buddhism is a type of meditation that soothes and calms. It's, it is mindfulness meditation, but it uses visualization as well as the breath. Okay. So you're kind of down this road and are you noticing improvements? Like you're sort of doing these intensive bursts with these teachers is your mood improving and are you sort of feeling a sense of greater clarity? Uh, I'm meditating every day and the meditations are getting uh, longer and easier to do. So I'm strengthening that, that neural muscle and I'm noticing that not only am I feeling calmer and more equanimous, you know, like less disturbed by the ups and downs of the day, when I have a thought or reaction to something, like I said, somebody might say something to you and your immediate reaction might be to take offense and to bite back. So if something like that happened, a perceived threat, I would see it as if it was coming from a distance towards me, you know, like a sailing boat that's on the horizon that slowly makes its way towards you. And then I could say, okay, I can feel I want to react this way automatically but I've actually got time to choose my reaction. And so I'll choose, and this is where the prefrontal cortex comes in, I will choose to react in a different way, a more considered way. So it felt like time slowed down and I had more time to think through what the response would be to any situation. Now, what that looked like to the outside person, I'm not sure whether they 
they thought, oh, he's gone really slow or <laughs> it's just the perceived slowness that I'm, I'm getting. But I, I know that I was getting less irritable, less angry. I just felt calmer a lot more. So it definitely was working for me. Okay. And so in terms of like the prefrontal cortex, do you think that it's actually setting up new um, neural pathways? So that whole limbic reaction versus the prefrontal cortex and it's sort of more considered response. Is this, is, are you laying down new pathways in your brain by doing this form of meditation? When, when people use that term laying down new pathways, it's not like a bricklayer laying down bricks for a new foundation of a house. What, what, what it is is that there are already existing neurons and they're potentially able to communicate with one another. So what we're talking about is new networks where there's just new connections being formed amongst existing neurons. So in the case of the prefrontal cortex, there's already a neuronal pathways going from that to the limbic system or the amygdala in particular, which is the one that we respond to with emotional threat. Yeah, the and it's actually, <laughs> sorry? The troublemaker. The troublemaker. Exactly, yeah. So, so if you look at a, um, a brain MRI, um, it, a functional brain MRI, that, that, that can show you where uh, the, the, the number of connections has increased or decreased. And after somebody's been doing meditation for a while, particularly mindfulness meditation, even with some of these eight-week courses that have been designed and proven, they, the functional brain MRI will show that there's extra connections between existing neurons that weren't there before. So there's more tra traffic, if you like, going between areas of the brain than there was before. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about laying down new, new neural pathways. It's more like a strengthening of pathways that might be there already, but they're, it's like going from a, you know, a two lane road to a four lane expressway, something like that. Okay. So have you had an MRI since your stroke and have you seen that increased traffic? Have you seen, and has your vision come back and your auditory processing, is that all back to kind of an optimum state? I, I have had an MRI, but not functional MRI. You need the functional MRI to sort of determine the, uh, uh, the, the, what's happening in various pathways. So I can't answer that first question. I can't actually say from a neurological perspective whether what I've been doing is, is made a noticeable change in my brain. It certainly subjectively feels that way. The... Um, Auditory processing has come back to an extent where I would say, you know, I've aged now. This We're talking 10 years ago when the stroke happened. So I'm getting natural aging, forgetfulness. But, but my memory has come back incredibly and my ability to hold a conversation now is nothing like what it was after the stroke. Uh, like when I speak on stage, for example, I, there's no way I could have done anything close to that before. And my visual field has come back uh, to a point where it's functionally completely 100%. And my ophthalmologist um, said, you know, because I'd, I would do a, a visual field test every six months and get a print off of that. 
And she said, look, this, this is, this, I would call this normal now, normal vision. Right. Okay. So 10, 10 years down the road. Uh, but would you say, do you think you're the same person you were before the stroke or cause they also say with strokes that sometimes there can be an actual shift in personality. Um, do you think, do you, I mean, certainly do people around you say, are you sort of similar to how you used to be or have you completely changed? I think I'm a different person. I don't think my personality is substantially different. However, I feel like a person that is a much nicer person, a more loving person, a person that's much more grateful for the little things in life. I'm not so taken by expensive entertainments anymore. I just get a lot of lot more joy out of simple things like having coffee with a friend, dancing, being in nature, playing music, uh, chatting with you, for example. Uh, and I've opened to new opportunities. So the narrative writing, narrative nonfiction writing that I've engaged in in, the, in recent years is something I never could have imagined doing. But I started to use narrative writing as one of the healing exercises where I try to go over my life and see had I contributed to what happened to me in some way, like had I made really bad choices so that all these things happened to me. And so I would write about my childhood and things that happened since, events that had happened in my career. And the narrative writing has been found to activate the left free left prefrontal cortex, which is the meaning-making part of our brain, the part that tends to put life experiences into a sequence and create a story out of them. So I've changed as a person in, in some what feel to me fundamental ways for the better. And this is the reason why I started to investigate a new field called post-traumatic growth how people can respond after, after a time, but after a major life crisis, a major life upheaval, whether it's a trauma or it's maybe a death of a child in the family or it's a natural disaster or diagnosis of a life-threatening illness, it causes a re-evaluation of what's important in your life and it can create a lot of suffering at the time, but you can unthread yourself from that suffering, see how you've created your suffering and find new, new joys and new opportunities that you couldn't have seen before. Yeah, okay. So do you, do you interview people about this or do you mostly try to teach people who have been traumatised um, methods that they can kind of get to a point where they are experiencing growth? Or how does it work? How do you kind of find out about people's post-traumatic growth? I've first went to a university seminar where a psycho-oncologist, somebody who works with cancer uh, survivors, did some research to see how the cancer diagnosis had changed the way they viewed themselves and their life. And she documented quite profound changes in, in a lot of cancer survivors. And she mentioned this word post-traumatic growth. I didn't know about it. This was several years ago. And I thought, wow, there's this whole field called post-traumatic growth. And when she listed some of the common changes that people can experience, I thought, wow, I've had that and I've had that and I've had that. I had all the types of changes that she listed uh, could be possible, including spiritual change. 
And that's when I thought, well, I can see now why I've changed. It's through the suffering I've been through and how I've had to negotiate my way through that suffering and find, you know, equanimity and joy uh, subsequent to that. So I wanted to take a, a greater deep dive into what are the psychological mechanics of how suffering impacts you, how people survive and how they grow from it. And that's when I embarked on my last book project where I thought, well, I'm going to talk to a lot of people that have been through life-changing experiences, survive them and grown from them and just see how much they have grown and in what ways they've grown and how did they survive, get through that survival period. And I wanted to get a range of different types of life experiences. So I've got, you know, like a death of a child from cancer I've got somebody who was involved in a motor vehicle accident where he lost most of his family. I've got um, a footballer, a famous footballer, who had a secret that uh, he didn't want to reveal to the public but eventually did. Uh, I've got somebody who had a stillborn child. Somebody had haemophilia from birth. Someone with anorexia, you know, a range of people. I've even got um, a New South Wales senior ambulance chaplain who had his own life-changing experience and then went on to become a minister of religion and then a chaplain to the New South Wales Ambulance Service. And I was very keen to see what spiritual perspective he brought to, to being with people who were going through great distress and suffering, including the paramedics, of course, but also bystanders who might be at a roadside accident or, you know, they've visiting a home where a child has died. And so from the lived experience of these people, I found uh, quite a number of uh, things that seem to work for people and ways in which they've changed and also wisdom that people that have been through these experiences can offer us, even if we haven't been through such a life-changing experience. Well, I guess, are there commonalities? And I mean... I guess you sort of often hear about the success stories, I suppose, like people who have managed to turn that crisis or terrible trauma into something positive. But are there people that fall through the cracks who don't transform, who don't kind of go through post-traumatic growth? Like are there people who, what happens to the people who don't get through it? Do they commit suicide? Do they end up drinking drugs? Like, what happens to those people? That, that's a very good question and one that I certainly wanted to address in my last project. There's a few things that I identified. One is that a person needs to have some capacity or some willingness to self-reflect. They need to notice what's going on inside them. And when I buy inside, I mean physical sensations, thoughts, feelings. So, you know, I was describing before how I noticed I would be triggered by somebody saying something and perceive that as a threat. Mm. I needed to notice I was doing that. Now, if people don't notice that they're responding in a certain way and they just blame everything on the external, on other people or the situation, and they keep seeing the problem as being out there rather than inside, they're not going to change because they don't even have the data to work with. Uh, so that's one thing. And another thing is that unless somebody reaches out, connects, finds people that 
they can tell their story to that might offer uh, different perspectives, helpful, helpful perspectives, they will also get stay stuck in their suffering. And uh, sometimes there's situations where there is no one to reach out to. So that could be, you know, more of a circumstantial thing. Another case is where people have had already, they've already got existing traumas or life circumstances that are, you know, substantial and they're just trying to deal with those before they deal with this new trauma. Uh, it's not until they deal with the earlier traumas that they can deal with the next one. So sometimes people are just overloaded already when it comes, comes along. So I'd say that, you know, connection, having this capacity for self-reflection and uh, sometimes life circumstances can pe- keep people stuck or facilitate growth. Right. So do you think that people can intervene in that process if, okay, if, if the self-awareness is not there, but like an external party can identify that this person is traumatised, can they create that connection? Like as a person who wants to help others or, you know, in your case, a psychologist and educator and author, um, is there a way of kind of stepping in if someone is drowning and pulling them out? I, I think the short answer is yes, with some qualifications. So the first thing we want to do when someone's going through a major life crisis and they're very distressed is to make sure they're safe and make sure they've got all their physical needs met. Uh, Because a feeling of safety is the primary thing. It's hard to deal with anything else when you feel unsafe because after a major life crisis has happened, it's like your world has shifted beneath you. It doesn't look and feel the same as it did. You know, with the COVID-19 crisis that we're going through now, it just changed everybody's perception of a world that seemed normal six months ago. And the same with the bushfires that we had. So these events create uh, a big shift internally in the person going through the crisis. So sometimes they just need somebody to hear their story. They need somebody to hear it over and over again. And that telling of the story over and over again is them trying to come to grips with this new reality. Okay, this is really what's happened. Okay, I can see that now. The person that's with them might offer suggestions for practical help or might say, you know, maybe, you know, doing this would be a good thing, but it's more like they walk alongside them rather than being advice-giving. So in my recent book, I talk about being an expert companion. This is very hard for people to be with somebody in great distress because they'll have one of two reactions. One is that they'll just run the hell out of there because it's so difficult to be with somebody who's really distressed. You don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. You're afraid you might say or do the wrong thing. The other reason is that you might just get drowned in their suffering and, uh, you know, bring yourself down. So the expert companion is somebody who can be with the what I call the sufferer, uh, still uh, acknowledge their distress, hear their story, but not be drowned by it. So the important thing for the expert companion is to think, okay, I don't have to fix this. This isn't something I need to fix. I just need to be with this person, create a human connection and show that I care. In time, uh, the, the sufferer 
can be helped to work out strategies to move forward. And that could include professional help or could include being involved in self-help groups. After the Black Saturday bushfires in Victoria 10 years ago, the people that did the best are the ones that joined groups, self-help groups, you know, with other fire victims because they, they inherently understand what you're going through and they become a support for each other. And they can also monitor how you're going um, because when you're recovering from a major life crisis, you may be improving, but you can't see it. And you need other people to say, well, oh, you're actually, you know, looking better today or you're sounding better or you're, you know, you couldn't do that before, stuff like that. Right, so it's kind of like that connection, but also witnessing and being with someone. And so I suppose the people who have kind of gotten through it and achieved post-traumatic growth, presumably those people would be amazing at this process. Like, so they'd be really good at identifying the people who are struggling and potentially being amazing companions in, in this time of trauma. So I suppose do a lot of people who have kind of come out the other end of trauma feel a desire to help others, like to sort of support other people who've gone through a similar thing or just who've gone through trauma generally? That's exactly right. Uh, one of the growth areas in post-traumatic growth that commonly happens is a deepening of relationships and a growth in compassion. So I've been through this major suffering. It was really awful. I would like to ease the suffering of others and you become much more sensitive to the suffering of others. So you notice it more, but there's this real willingness to want to ease the suffering of others. And also um, a joy that can come in doing that. So this creates new meaning for people, a new purpose, providing personal services to others that have been through major difficulties, creates a more meaningful life for somebody that's already been through an experience and come out the other end. And sometimes this compassion is directed towards others who are going through the same type of thing you've gone through. So if you've if you're a cancer survivor, you might direct it to other cancer survivors. But sometimes it'll just become broader than that. It's just a greater sensitivity to the suffering of others and wanting to ease that suffering when you can. And as I say, because you've been through this major suffering and you survive, you're not afraid of suffering anymore. It doesn't upset you like it would have once. And so you can be with others that are going through these difficult times. Right. And it sort of sounds to me, David, like that's exactly what you've done through writing these books and becoming a speaker and kind of becoming a, I guess, an advocate for post-traumatic growth um, is kind of, it sounds like that's what you've done with your trauma. Like you, and you're already doing really important work before that, but work that was ultimately harming you. And yeah, you've managed, you have ultimately succeeded in your, what you specialize in, which is post-traumatic growth. <laughs> so I guess like if people want to connect with you or buy your books or see you speak, how can people connect with you? Uh, a good first point of contact is my Facebook, uh, sorry, my website, davidroland.com.au. And from there, you know, there's social media links and there's information you know, if you want to book a, a, a talking event or a book event, 
Um, so I've got a Facebook page and, you know, Instagram and so on. So the, the website would be a good first point of contact. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you so much, David. Thank you for your time. And your story is phenomenal. And I just think there's like so much we could talk about, (laughs) but thank you so much for your time today. And I'm incredibly grateful and I uh, look forward to seeing what you do in the future and helping you promote it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Emma. And great questions today. Thank you for your interest. It's a fascinating topic. (laughs) So thank you so much, David. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to That Shit Show. If you like what you've heard, head to the Facebook page or the website for more information. It's thatshitshowpodcast.com. You'll find show notes and more episodes to download. Thanks so much for joining me.